Welcome to the Aquila Report in Review, the time when we look at the top 10 articles that have been read by the Aquila Report readers over the past week. And this last week, it would be from December 20 through 27. Uh, we publish about four, uh, 56 articles every week. And uh, then we look at the end of that week to see what were the top 10 that interested the readers. And that's what we have before you. And then these top 10 are sent out to you in the Aquila Report newsletter, which comes out normally on Tuesday of each week. And so for this week, it'll come out on December 29. And if you uh, do not receive it, you go to the AquilaReport.com and look over to the right-hand side and in the column, and you will see a place where you can subscribe uh, free to the top 10 story email. Uh, address and it will um, take you right there. And then, so this podcast is an opportunity for Paul Harrell and I. Paul Harrell is up in uh, the Jonesboro area and um, he is Jonesboro, Arkansas. And so we have the opportunity to just go over and review and give our sense about it to sort of stir interest uh, and to assess, you know, why did the readers uh, choose this? So is there any common uh, uh, common issues that tie them together. Uh, many times they don't, uh, but sometimes they do. And so the, we have this opportunity to, to uh, meet with you uh, once a week in this area. So, Paul, welcome to this, I think it's the third episode of our uh, podcast of the Aquila Report in Review. And so we are ready to begin in just a moment, but you may want to say some greetings yeah, you know, before we uh, begin. Honestly, uh, this is not, this is episode three. Uh, I love these this group of top ten. It's I think my favorite so far, and this is the only like you said this is our third episode. And I have been in contact with folks who've reached out to me uh, who are enjoying this very much. And so for those of you out there who are listening, I would appreciate it. We would both appreciate it if you could share this podcast with your friends. And if you are listening via Apple, please rate the podcast five stars. That can really help things in the long run. Okay. Well, with that in mind, then we can begin. Uh, the, the first uh, uh, number one read article for this past week uh, was of Slopes and Church History, which is an interview that was conducted by Brad Isbell, who uh, is um, the uh, ruling elder in the Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, uh, Tennessee. And he's also one of the uh, facilitators and speakers on the Presbycast, presbycast.com. And that's another one of a podcast that you would want to uh, listen to. Uh, always uh, have exciting and thrilling and informative uh podcast. And uh, he did an interview with Dr. Uh, Daryl G. Hart. Uh, Daryl Hart is professor, uh, associate professor of history at Hillsdale College in Michigan, and he's also a ruling elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So with that background, um, the this article, it's a very brief interview, but it's a very good one. It's uh, uh, really jumps into the main um issues here. And the question that um, uh, Brad Isbell had for Dr. Hart was uh, this 
people talk about the slippery slope. Is there such a thing? And uh, people really don't like to hear that. There's some folks that don't anyway. And when it's uh, mentioned that a movement or a thought or uh, a, a shift away from some position uh, could be a slippery slope, they tend to react uh, quite negatively and vociferously. And so he asks uh, that question and Dr. Hart uh, responds and then gives some more critical data because of his historical background. He uh, obviously argues and speaks from a historical perspective that um, uh, he could says from a historical perspective, nothing in history is inevitable. If a church went liberal in the past, it is not a guarantee one is doing so in the present, though, if someone isn't worried about going liberal, I'm not sure what Protestant history that person is reading. So what he's basically what he's saying is that we basically have a 100 percent chance of if things are going bad, it's going to keep going badly. That is moving away from whatever the position of uh, denomination in the history of Presbyterianism or any other denomination for that matter. And so um, I think it's an interesting take that he gives to us and uh, it, it really helpful. So it'll stir your mind. It'll be something that you may want to use uh, and um, and share with uh some of your your pastor with uh, with elders in your church, others that venture small small group discussions and the like. So, Paul, what uh, uh, slippery slope are you seeing uh, <laughs> going on these days? Oh man, uh, I mean, where to begin? I I, re- I really thought uh, Brad uh, Isbell's questions were spot on, and I also like that he does entertain what is said negatively about the slippery slope argument, which is you're accused of being an alarmist. You know, you're accused of essentially being someone who's crying wolf when there, when there is no danger. Uh, But it is pointed out that that's really the underlying issue here is when you're saying something is, is a slippery slope, you're essentially saying, Hey, look, these ideas are dangerous. And uh, the slippery slope is, basically leading towards a cliff. I mean, you think about it, you know, we might fall off the cliff, uh, you know, I don't know where into the abyss or what have you. Uh, so I thought it was a very good article. It is thought provoking and the slippery slopes that we're facing today, Dominic, to answer your question are, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, obvious out there. And I think that's why the readers of the Aquil report keep voting up these types of articles. They're worried about, uh, liberalism. They're worried about uh, excusing the inerrancy of scripture for cultural considerations. And we've got an article that's, uh, let's see, coming up here on the number three on the list that's going to speak more to that. So, I mean, I'm definitely concerned about it, whether it's, you know, the downplaying uh, or the uh, excuses that are being make, made uh, about uh, certain, you know, sexual sins, whether it's about racial reconciliation versus critical race theory and how that uh, coincides with the gospel, or whether it's about trying to distance yourself from, uh, well, you know, there's an article up on the AquilaReport.com right now uh, entitled Christian Nationalism versus Christian Patriotism, uh, written by the Gospel Coalition's Thomas Kidd. I'm, I got a feeling that article is going to make our top 10 list next week. The slippery slope is certainly uh, something people are concerned about, and with good reason. Yes, and, and I agree, and that's the reason I think it uh, it, it is a uh, an interesting approach to this. Um, the um, 
you know, one of the things that uh, Dr. Hart says, um, but if liberalism is more a product of transformationalism or social justice, then yes, there are signs of liberalism in the PCA and other reformed communities. Some will recoil from the idea that activism is synonymous with liberalism. But if you think the church has a certain work to perform, to minister the gospel, save the lost, and prepare people for judgment day, the church's mission is inherently otherworldly. And this is that is clear in Paul's writing in such as uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18, for we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, so that which is temporary, uh, since that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So I think that's uh, that's the the tendency and the pull that <clears throat> we have uh, in the life of the church. And I think that is a constant that is in the life of the church, which is probably why when if you really do put it through the lens of history, and you see certain trends that are taking place on uh, one side or the other, where someone's going too far to the right or too far to the left to use uh, more of the political uh, phrases, then it, it, you can say, watch out, be careful, because uh, it's uh, going to um, take you in a different way. In fact, as you said, the third article that we have will also be dealing with this uh, matter of uh, Maybe a shift. Some people believe to the right that the church is going to, and that's not very healthy either. Yeah. Uh, um, another quote <laughs> that's, that stands out to me, Dominic, in this piece from Dr. Hart, and, and again, this was the number one read article on the Quillerreport.com last week. Quote: Call me an obsessive old old school Presbyterian. It's hard not to see new school Presbyterianism as the picture worth a thousand words. New school Presbyterians were not liberal in the 20th century sense. They were supernaturalist, even evangelical by Billy Graham standards, but they were not very good Presbyterians, which is okay. Not everyone has to be Presbyterian, but if you are Presbyterian, you may want to pay attention to the pieces of Presbyterian identity. But new schoolers sensed that doctrine, polity, and even worship hindered the larger work of civilizing and evangelizing the nation. Very good. And so that's just basically saying that when you begin moving away from what Presbyterianism is historically, then uh, you, you're the one that's making the move. So the question would come up, who moved? And, uh, and the question is, well, maybe it needs to be redefined. And if that's the case, then let's have the debate. Uh, <clears throat> but the, usually what happens is it uh, after the debate is over, it, uh, there's usually some kind of uh, division, a break, because uh, others don't agree that that um, new direction is necessarily the correct one. So that's a challenging one for us and uh, for the church. And uh, so I would encourage you to go up and read it uh, if you haven't read it uh, to when the list comes out uh, tomorrow on the 29th and uh, you'll be able to uh, read it on your own. Now, moving to number two, uh, this one probably is uh, an example uh, of uh, or an illustration of the very thing that we were just talking about. And it's written by someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian or else not very active in the life of the church. Uh, so it's an outsider. And in fact, it's from the Spectator magazine by Ben Six Smith. Six Smith. And, uh, and the title is The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. 
And so they, and I thought I, when I first saw that title, I said, well, that's interesting. Let me read it to see what it's saying. And is this something that would be of interest to the Aquila Report readers? Well, that it was clicked on number two, uh, most uh, read of all the articles. And obviously it was. And it, the, it's the irony of the uh, <clears throat> of the um, the the celebrity pastor and of course, to use the whole concept of celebrity pastor, you know, brings you know brings things up in a in a very unique way. Uh, <clears throat> the thing that uh, impressed me here on this is the uh, someone from the outside basically is making this uh, adjustment or this concept. And the one uh, pull quote that I saw here that I thought was interesting is that <clears throat> the he talks about that it's Christianity with a twist, uh, with a twist of Christianity. In other words, we can see that with a twist of Christianity, a uh, trend elsewhere. Falwell uh, was representative of the right wing, talking about Jerry Falwell, uh, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. And then there are the progressive Christians, uh, of whom Nadia Bowles-Weber, who is a Lutheran a pastor, she's uh, in uh, Denver area, is an extreme example because she really is on way on the left side of the equation, uh, who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. So he uses that uh, a number of times. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. Uh, the former uh, believe secular individualists uh, mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. And so if Christianity is such an in, inessential add-on, why even become a Christian? So that's a interesting uh, question. By the way, he does say, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should or should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth uh, following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. I thought that was an honest statement on the part of the uh, author of this piece. In other words, religion is of such a nature that it should make me feel uncomfortable as opposed to just sort of going along to get along. Yeah, I think I think what you said is very honest. I mean, if the stakes are what the Christian faith says they are, which is you know, uh, worshiping God, you know, being with him or not being. I mean, if if hell is real, if those are what the stakes are, I, I think he sees the obvious point that there's there should be a difference. There should be um, a little bit of uh, uncomfortableness uh, there. Speaking specifically to the point of the article, the celebrity idea, the celebrity pastors, he writes, quote, one problem with turning yourself into a celebrity is that your failings become scandals. And he mentions Lentz of Hillsong, who was fired in November for cheating on his wife. Uh, his mistress saw her chance to get 15 minutes of fame and sold her story to the press. And then there are other women that came forward and it just kind of, you know, explodes into this, uh, you know, terrible representation of, of what no, no, you know, no one wants that to be the representation when we talk about Christianity or Christians. I did think it was interesting that he makes this observation about the culture and how so many 
Christians seem to really want to be just like the culture or just like uh, him, and, and and that they're on a quest to do that. That that seems to be his his impression a lot of times, and uh, that obviously is a rebuke to uh, is a rebuke to how we're handling it. You know, one thing when you were talking, Dominic, that popped into my mind was just like you know they they will know you by they will know you by your love for one another. You know, and that's that's kind of I, I that's kind of where I am on this right now. Yeah, and I think so. And I, there is that pull of saying, you know, if I get my name out, uh, then it will be for the progress of the gospel. And uh, the assumption is that God needs our celebrity status uh, to uh-huh. make things happen for uh, the gospel to be well received in the world. And there are ways in which the Lord does use that, of course. Uh, but uh, when you think of the uh, early church, that uh, Paul probably did everything he could to put aside the fact that he was popular. In fact, that, I like to use the illustration from his life where uh, he's sitting in prison in Rome, writing in his first Roman imprisonment. He wrote the um, book of Philippians. He did write Ephesians as well. And uh, in one point, he says that my imprisonment, uh, instead of people writing Amnesty International and trying to get him out, and if he had heard about it, he probably would have said, don't do that, because it's actually turned in that I found a whole mission field that I would never have been able to find or uh, encounter, and that is that the Praetorian Guards, you know, Caesar's elite, were um, were coming to faith. And so they were now in Caesar's own uh, Green Berets, there were Bible study taking place in their uh, and barracks. And uh, said it wouldn't have ever happened. So he was, Paul was ecstatic uh, that he had this opportunity and he didn't feel like these guys didn't know him. All he knew was these guards came in, they was chained to them. And uh, so he saw them as chained to the gospel as yes. opposed to him being chained to Caesar. And he took advantage of it. And so those two would come in and he would say, oh, great, now another hour, another mission field. And they would leave having prayed to receive Christ and left Christians. And he, Bobby discipled them as they're chained to him the next day. And next two would come in. He said, oh, great, here's another um, set, you know, mission field. And pretty soon the Praetorian Guard of, of Nero was uh, turning to Christ. So then he says that, uh, look, with all of that's happening here, uh, I'm come to this point. Here's my philosophy of ministry summarized in a series of monosyllabic words. Uh, as for me, uh, live is Christ and die is gain. And the uh, and you could just almost hear the church say, no, no, Paul, 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 you're too important for us. You're you're uh, an apostle. You're an evangelist. You're a church planter. You're a missionary. You're writing. You know, Lord's using you to write so much of the New Testament. Uh, you're too essential. And Paul yawned at that. He says, no, I'm ready to go home, be with Jesus, uh, to lot, die is gain. And so he had a balanced perspective about himself that I think was really good. And uh, he was he, in uh, the other way I like to put it is he didn't take his press clipping seriously because he knew that uh, within just a short bit of time that someone in the church would turn against him because they didn't like his strong position on things or the culture would turn on him 
uh, either the Jews because of his uh, preaching Jesus, they didn't like that, or the secularist uh, represented the Roman soldiers and Nero and so forth because uh, they weren't honoring the, the the Caesar as Lord as divine. So, you know, he lived his life in the context of, uh, I don't know when I'm going down, so I'm my, my purpose is to live for Christ, and then I know I'll gain him, and I'll have him all the more. So anyway, that's the way celebrities uh, would probably feel like God doesn't need celebrities. Now, if God blesses someone and they rise to the certain, as long as they make sure they maintain themselves, probably okay. But our problem is, is that, as he says, one problem with turning yourself into a celebrity is that your failings become scandals, as you already said, yeah. and that you wind up being your lifestyle actually reflects more the culture than anything that the scripture has. Number three is the uh, isolation of the evangelical elites. The isolation of the evangelical elites. That was an article written by uh, Chris Gordon, who is a minister uh, in the uh, United Reformed Church in the uh, San Diego area, California. And... um, Basically, the the sort of the one line takeaway here, if there's any parroting of the political divide within Christianity itself, the problem of religious elitism is certainly a contributing factor. So he's, in essence, calling out those who perceive themselves as being uh, the elitists because they're sort of the academics. They're the ones who are known going back to the celebrity pastor um routine uh, and and comment. And so uh, Chris Gordon here uh, just is sort of challenging that side. So another pull quote that we have, without doubt, the culture is running a bus over evangelicals at present. And many heartland uh, populists are sick and tired of their own Christian institutions pandering to whatever the culture pushes them to do as they are further marginalized. I hear the concerns frequently. Why do our Christian institutions go theological liberal? Uh, More perplexing, why is the critique always made against us? Why does the Christian academy and the elite seem to always punch right and never punch left? Uh, And he says these are fair questions. So uh, basically, the the point that uh, Chris Gordon is bringing in this article that I, again, would uh, urge you to uh, read if you haven't already or to uh, share it with others is to understand that the that the divide comes then also with terms of who perceives themselves to be sort of on top and those who perceive themselves to be at the bottom or are perceived that way by others. And so you have the elites and then you have the regular common uh, ordinary folk. Uh, And so I think that um, uh, we is something to look at and uh, and debate and so forth. By the way, one of the other stirring reasons on this uh, for uh, Pastor Gordon was that uh, how during the recent uh, national elections here in the U.S. uh, that there were those. Uh, in the um, elite that were questioning whether or not it was appropriate and right, uh, can a good solid believer vote for, um, you know, Donald Trump? 
Uh, and so they came up and there were there was a whole movement called the evangelical uh, pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And so there the the question was how the, that was that circle was being squared uh, amongst some folks. And I think that that's in the background of this particular article. Yeah, and that is an absolute, <clears throat> in my opinion, tragedy that that movement uh, ever even happened. And I would love to debate anybody who would disagree with me there. Honestly, Dominic, I love this article. Um, and keep in mind, we're talking about the elites that exist within the hierarchical structure of, you know, uh, Christianity, uh, you know, reformed denominations as well as other evangelical denominations. And I have to say, uh, this was welcome. This article, if I could recommend any article uh, for you guys to read that you missed last week during the Christmas holiday, again, this is by Chris Gordon, The Isolation of Evangelical Elites, and they rightfully do ask the question, why does it seem that our institutions seem to always punch to the right? They seem to always want to point out that those of us who are on the right, and I'll admit that's where I am, are not perfect. Uh, this this idea that Donald Trump, you mentioned Trump, Dominic, uh, you know, is not perfect, that the Republican Party is not perfect. There's no one out there saying that they are. There's I have a feeling that right now, if, if King David were here, we would have some people from Christian institutions that would utterly reject him right now. And I also want to point out that it does seem it feels like to me very much like uh, a Pharisee type attitude that's being put out there. The, in, in my opinion, while we have people who are engaging the culture, we have people who are also fighting for, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Scripture is inerrant, fighting for uh, the preservation of truth and purity in our denominations you know, the, that is generally a good thing that God uses. We know this flawed individuals to accomplish his will. He's done this from, you know, the beginning of time and to constantly punch right and constantly point out, well, and I talked about this last week, this overcorrection, but you can point out that we don't have it all together on the right. Okay, we mess up, we sin, we don't do everything we're supposed to do. So that then, then somehow the overcorrection it is to then, uh, you know, welcome, uh, you know, and excuse blatant sin, open sin uh, is somehow we're going to try to give people who claim to be Christians a clear conscience to go and vote for Joe Biden, the Democrat Party. I mean, the bottom line is, let's just talk about that for a second. The Democrat Party opposes and works against openly, openly. Every one of the Ten Commandments. And we spend more time, it seems like our Christian institutions spend more time criticizing the members of the choir because they want to get politically engaged and they want to vote for the movement that is, say what you want to about it, not openly advocating the violation or the subversion of all ten of God's commandments. And so, and and I'll and I'll mention one last thing, Dominic. I, I'll mention this article. It's up right now, and I think it's going to make the top ten list next week. It's up right now, though, at theaquilareport.com. Christian nationalism versus Christian patriotism, written by Thomas Kidd. It's a Gospel Coalition article, 
if you go to this piece that we're talking about, again, number uh, number what is this? Number three on yes, the list. Mm-hmm. He says that the reason uh, we have these Christian institutions that are constantly punching to the right are for two reasons. Number one, social peer culture. Elitists are stuck in a web of social peer culture to find acceptance in the broader academic world. Now, let me just stop right there. We believe as Christians that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is alive right now at the right hand of the Father advocating on our behalf. There's nothing reasonable about that claim. And and there's no way I would ever expect the academic world to accept that. So you're already going against the grain of people who are in the secular world, blinded, we know, dead in their sin. But he goes on, a society demonizes populist evangelicals as stupid and uneducated, and anyone seeking credibility in the academy must distance themselves from what is generally strafed by the culture if they are to be respected as broader academic scholars. Now, I would contend that that's the reason that article I just referenced about Christian nationalism was even written. Also, number two on this on on his uh, on his list, what are what are the other reasons that these elitists in our uh, our realm are are punching towards the right? Social redefinition, he writes, to critique any of the social issues that have been used by the political left, i.e., LGBT rights, same-sex marriage, feminism, abortion rights, Black Lives Matter, and so on, would further marginalize, they assume about half the population that now cannot identify with a Christianity that is classified as being racist and ignorant due to politically conservative allegiances. It's a matter of feared association. In this case, it's easy to punch right and death to a career to punch left. This article hits the nail on the head. Yeah, and it is something that uh, you probably want to discuss and uh, tease out a little bit more. So Pastor Gordon has uh, helped us uh, with uh, by at least raising it and giving the broad uh, definitions and the other articles exist. And by the way, you'll notice that we at the Equal Report attempt to put other articles, and that's the reason the one that you mentioned from uh, Dr. Kidd is up as well. Yes, um, it needs to be because up. We, the, we, I believe that what has happened over the uh, 12 years that the Equal Report has been uh, in existence that uh, the readership, as I see it and I define them, basically are rational and reasonable, intelligent and discerning, and they're able to wrestle with uh, arguments and uh, passions and, and desires and, and notions and themes and uh, theses and propositions. So they're able to do that. And so I don't I'm not afraid. I don't want to promote uh, just one uh, side. Uh, I want it out there for there to be genuine discussion in the life of the church for the health of the church. And so that's the reason uh, uh, for that. But the observations uh, here uh, then are uh, are helpful and would uh, definitely encourage you. And I have the sense that since you already raised about two of the articles for next week uh, that are <laughs> will probably be wind up being well, uh, in the top ten. I, I have to confess, I mentioned them in part because I, I really want people to click on them and so that we yes, can sir. talk about them next week. Yeah, well, I think I don't think you even if you hadn't, I don't think that would be the problem <laughs> that, yeah. that would happen. Well, but thank you for uh, giving a little re uh, uh, a PR on that. 
Okay, well, now we come to number uh, four, uh, and we're going to have the next two, actually, are dealing with uh, the whole matter of uh, COVID. So we're not changing sort of right midstream to uh, uh, what is still now uh, a, a problem that we are facing with the COVID is just the, the virus, uh, the coronavirus that's been with us all of almost all of uh, 2020. And um, this particular article is called COVID-19 Lockdowns, colon, Liberty and Science, and it's written by Sam Jacobs in which he basically is taking the position that uh, we've over, there's been an overreaction on the part of the authorities and in this overreaction and the things that have been put forward in the overreaction have not been helpful uh, to uh, the, uh, to the population. And as we see the second wave coming along and we're hearing uh, that their hospitals are even more full or fuller than they were the first time around. Uh, and it's in places where there seems to be uh, more of an emphasis on uh, social distancing, wearing the mask, um, uh, washing hands, staying away from, uh, you know, major events, especially if they're indoors, uh, where where the, you could become super spreaders, as they say. Uh, that's interesting that in those places where they're really, you know, honing down, they, it seems like it's growing more than in other places. So we don't want to mess with it. It's obvious that COVID-19 is, is a major issue. The question is, did, have we really approached it and attacked it in one way? Now, the next article after this one will deal with it from the more religious side about uh, who's really in control. Is it us or God uh, and so forth? But right now, this one at least is um, is asking questions and also uh, pro proposing and uh, promoting the fact that the there's been an overreaction and there are other actions, steps that could have been taken and can still be taken uh, that are legitimate and would also preserve uh, the integrity of uh, our being good citizens, uh, caring about others, because that tends to be the other. If you're not doing exactly what the uh, science says, washing hands, masking, and social distancing, uh, then then you don't care and you want everybody just to die. And what that this saying is, no, that's too simplistic. Uh, there are other options, and we need to at least look at what those options are uh, that could um, can, you know, be uh, brought to bear. Just one reference that has come out in the uh, probably the last uh, month or so, it's called the Great Barrington Declaration. It was signed by over 7,000 scientists, virologists, and infectious disease experts who believe that lockdowns are destroying, and then a quote, at least seven times as much life, close quote, as the disease itself, and that the United States and the United King in the United States and the United Kingdom, and there is irreparable irreparable damage being done. Now that is a you know massive statement when you think about this that um, the science all of a sudden isn't exclusive 
to one position when you have 7,000 scientists, virologists, and infectious disease experts making that statement. The declaration notes clearly that, quote, seven times as much damage is the absolute minimum, putting a figure realistically more at 90 times uh, more damaging. And not only damaging in terms of the health issues, but also in terms of the psychological, the emotional uh, the psych, the what's it's doing to children, uh, also the uh, the economic uh, issues as well as we know so much uh, hear so much about. So uh, this is I think a very o- the overview here is not uh, I, it's not just a bomb throwing article saying I don't like to these restrictions. This is a clear saying there is another alternative that can be considered that just has as much science and we need to at least look at that possibility. Yeah, just as much science. And, you know, we've got this article about COVID. The next one's about COVID. So buckle up. Speaking of buckling up, why don't we just ban cars, Dominic? I mean, it could save at least one life, maybe it's actually 30,000 U.S. lives a year. You know, it's a dangerous thing to drive two ton vehicles at one another at 70 miles an hour. Right. And this is the argument. It's it's an emotional one. But if you can just save one life, then do these things. And this article highlights that it's actually doing much more damage than you think uh, lives are being saved. And it's really good. And, uh, you know, this also has to do with the elites, because you mentioned the science, but we have, quote, elite scientists, if that's what you want to call them, or, uh, quote, or, or elite, quote, scientists, that were telling us back in March that we didn't even have to wear a mask. And there's plenty of articles out there that back that up. I love this piece because it is, very uh it's scientific and there's many citations there's a cambridge study in here that cited about the effectiveness of masks you know a long time ago before covid when we were just looking at you know flu viruses which are coronaviruses themselves this was uh the part of the article that most stood out to me do lockdowns and masks even work he writes all of this raises an important central question Why do the elderly, those with underlying health conditions and obese, simply sequester themselves or take reasonable precautions rather than shutting down the world economy? Indeed, there is mounting evidence that government, by the way, these facts, theories, hypotheses, this will get you banned off of Facebook and Twitter. You can't even ask honest questions anymore. Uh, And it's a lot of that is because uh, we have these big corporate Silicon Valley uh, companies that are emulating Uh, the policies of the communist Chinese. But that's a different story. Indeed, there is mounting evidence that government intervention has, surprise of surprise, actually made things worse. As of November 18th, 2020, there have been 34,058 COVID deaths in the state of New York. Of these, 6,500 or approximately one in seven total deaths were nursing home deaths. Uh, Then you skipping down here. What about the omnipresent masks? That we are now seeing everywhere to the point where someone without a mask is seen as the strange one. They must work, of course, but there is scant evidence that masks prevent the transmission. That's the Cambridge study that uh, cited in the article. You can click on that there Uh, or any other respiratory infection. Scant evidence that masks prevent the transmission in even randomized clinical trials. Uh, I'm sorry, in every randomized clinical trial ever conducted, there have been inconclusive findings that mask wearing aided in suppressing transmission of respiratory 
diseases. Studies generally rely upon fitted N95 respirators that must be sterilized after every use or surgical mask that should be thrown away. We have more evidence that typical masks cause headaches than that they prevent against COVID. Um, now, the reason this part stuck out to me the most, Dominic, is because I know we have churches who have been in prayer. We have churches who have been grieved about this whole situation and that the that God's people have had an issue gathering in the year 2020. And I get that and I understand that. And it's and they've made decisions as things are coming at them. And I just want to know, is there are there any leaders out there, though, that are now kind of rethinking what they do from here on out. And and that's a kind of a, a big decision that churches, I think, are going to have to make uh, going forward. And the number one is how do we rely on the information that we are getting? We're going to make decisions based on information that is being told to us by who? <clears throat> that's the, that's the first thing. And so I think we're going to have to have a have to find a way when this is all said and done how do we interpret as the body of Christ the information we're getting and how are we going to treat our congregants? Are we going to treat them the way the government and giant corporations are, are treating them? Or are we going to treat them uh, the way the Bible prescribes? And, and this is a, this is a very big deal because I know there was a lot of people that thought, okay, this is just going to be for a couple of months, right? It was at first, the art of this article talks about it, Dominic at first, this is about, 15 days to slow the spread, but then it turned into to more. And now we're talking about even if you get this vaccine, if you trust it, even if you get the vaccine, you still may have to wear a mask. We may be masked up now till 2021. So from a church standpoint, it was like, okay, we're going to shut down because that's what we're told to do or that's what we've been urged to do. Okay, now we're going to open back up, but we're going to make people socially distance. Uh, we're going to make people wear masks in some cases. Um, and eventually that's going to end, right? And, and it was going to end this year or it was going to end six months ago. But now we have them telling us, no, 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 you're going to alter the way the church treats its congregates now for two years. Maybe mm. this goes into next Christmas. My, I guess my point is, Dominic, I really I really hope we are now reconsidering how we get our information and what decisions we make. And 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 what are what what are we going to what does this mean for the church moving forward is my question. Exactly. Well, again, this is uh, something that we talked about. It seems like almost every week now we have uh, in these episodes that we're um, podcasts that we're doing that uh, that uh, bring in a COVID story because it is obviously front and center and where we are culturally. And so the um, question. So this is the debate that is is going on. Uh, right now, and one of the think comments I made at one point is that we have changed their uh, the authority structure now in our culture in general, in the church especially, uh, from "Thus saith the Lord" to "Thus saith science." And um, but we find that if indeed this brand um, Barrington statement uh, declaration is uh, worth anything, uh, and I think it is if you look at the names of those that are in there, they have just as much credibility and intellect and study and background in science, virology, infectious disease, and the like. And so you, we need to read them and give some heed to that. So which science? So it isn't fixed. It isn't established completely. And they're 
so they're presenting another alternative. So the thing that on this one is this, that this article is very well sourced. So if a statement is made and then there's a hyperlink so you can click on it and read the documents and the documents are on all sides uh, of who said what, which regardless of which position you take. So it's a helpful article because it is, uh, you know, has the ability for you now to click on it and read yourself and not just yeah. depend on anybody. And I'm glad you mentioned that that statement, the 7000 doctors there. And also, I just have to interject. We live in a world where one of those doctors, okay, if there is a doctor that gets singled out and there's a CNN article or a New York Times article written about it, that doctor could probably, uh, uh, you know, lose their job. That's that's where we are right now. We also and and I don't think we don't need to shy away from, you know, in lovingly being able to accept reality, pointing out that we are not being told the truth about this situation and haven't from the beginning. Again, not to say that this is not real. It, it 100% is real, but we have had so many mixed results. For example, look this up, the World Health Organization, which again is this, we, you know, like you said, Dominic, we're not going to trust God, we're going to trust science. The World Health Organization is now amending their definition of herd immunity. You, you can find it. They the, Their definition of herd immunity was, well, you know, when enough people uh, get the virus or get the illness and they get over it, now you've got herd immunity. They have now am- amended that last week to now say, well, uh, that's uh, herd immunity is how many people have been vaccinated. So when you get to X amount, then uh, X amount vaccinated who have actually had a shot, now you have herd immunity. So they are retroactively, it's like the Ministry of Truth, they're going back and changing things, and the church needs to be aware of this. That these, So the WHO obviously informs the medical community here in the U.S., and then the medical community in the U.S. distributes that information down, and we have healthcare professionals whose jobs depend on going along with what they're told from their higher-ups. And I just think we need to at least be aware of this. And right. Start to make plans about how we interpret and analyze data the next time some of this happens or maybe in the midst of this pandemic, we start to realize that, uh, you know, just because you have an MD next to your name does not make you, uh, you know, uh, the correct doesn't make you right necessarily. Okay, And, and, and that's not a bad thing to consider. So just read this, and this is, again, something that uh, what I appreciate about the articles I've already said is that it's well-sourced, and you get both sides so that it's not just it makes a statement, then there's a hyperlink for the article so that you can get the both-and approach, not just a – it's not uh, just someone beating on a, uh, a drum or, or uh, playing one tune. It's not a broken record. So um, it's something for us to consider, and so for – us uh, schleppers, as we like to say in the uh, slang, um, who don't know the, the science and like that and stuff, it helps to at least uh, study and be aware of what is taking place and how it's affecting us culturally. But we move now to number five uh, because we we come to um, the and the, the the this whole thing of COVID from the point of view of who really is in control. Uh, because we think that we as human beings are the measure of all things and we we know everything and we're infallible and what we're finding out is it isn't. So this is from Breakpoint 
which is the uh, prison fellowship uh, radio ministry, uh, we can't control COVID, parenthesis, or much of anything else, which we, you know, intellectually, we know that, uh, that we really can't uh, do that. So uh, this article, uh, We Can't Control COVID, says, in early March, the University of California, San Francisco held a panel discussion. So this is early March. So this is at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, a panel discussion of infectious disease specialists on a new virus that had, at that point, killed 41 Americans. So everything was really new. These experts not only estimated that 60 to 70 percent of America's population would eventually con contract the virus, but that our best attempts to contain it, either through lockdowns or contracting a contract contact tracing, would be, in their words, basically futile. Now, that's what they said in March. But today, nine months later, the prediction of this particular panel of experts have turned out like most uh, other COVID-19 predictions, right on some things, wrong on others. It's not clear just how effective all the quarantining, lockdowning, social distancing, masking has been uh, in reducing the number of infections or why, despite more data or our assumptions about COVID-19, remain largely unchanged. So, it, 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 and that's the fact. And that's what we just said about this uh, uh, other article. Uh, the, which is number four. And so they're asking the question, who can, can we really control it? And what it's basically, this article, of course, being from a Christian perspective, is not arguing against the, the science one way or the other. What it's basically saying is when we really sort of shake it all down, it's um, what can we uh, acknowledge? What can we really say about um the this from the point of view of our faith and who's really in control so it says how quickly we went from quote we acknowledge we can't control this close quote of the panel that was i just mentioned of the uh, panel of experts that to the quote we absolutely can and will control this so that's where we moved and we shifted from these things happen just like the flu epidemic always moves through no matter how carefully uh, we we live and wash our hands and so forth. And so it was inevitable that it was going to happen. Though. So the shift from most of us are going to get sick, but let's care and protect the vulnerable to everyone must avoid getting sick at all costs is a significant one. So the, the, term, the, the use of terminology becomes very important. Uh, so we're almost to the point of saying we we're you know, we're the smartest, we're living in a scientific age, and we can control. So by controlling the language, it says what we want to do is we don't want anyone to get sick. And when you set that as the standard, it creates one outcome. If you say, we know people are getting sick, the, the flu comes or the back in the days when measles, you know, I grew up with the measles and the chicken pox, and including uh, polio, I lived through the time when we started getting the Sock uh, vac vaccine, um, you know, it, it it's it's going to happen. We no matter how hard we try, it gets through all of our uh, defenses that we erect. So, who's really in control? Well, really in control is God, and uh, so how what He disposes in terms in a fallen world, things like this happen. And we take the, you know, we always take prudent measures. 
just one more thing before you speak on this too, Paul, is uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had an article that we dealt with in our top 10 that was an article taken from uh, the quarantine laws of Leviticus, the Old Testament, uh, chapters 13 through 15, and that how that chapter uh, said, you know, in terms of quarantining, when an issue broke out, when something broke out, that they basically quarantined the people who were um, tainted or affected by whatever the uh, the matter was, and the rest of the population were careful in their interactions, but they went about daily life. Uh, we've taken around saying what we're going to do is quarantine everybody with the hope that it'll go away, and uh, that hasn't worked either. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and I'll I'll add also. You know, you mentioned a fallen world that we live in, and you just think about how quickly this can get out of hand with the lockdowns and the, and we shouldn't be surprised that they have been extended because if you understand the fallen nature of some of these, uh, of just human beings, when you have these people in positions of power, the question is why would they do this to our liberties and freedoms and take advantage of a situation? The question is why wouldn't they? And once you start looking at it through a lens of why wouldn't they, you quickly realize Again, what a slippery slope it is where you have – this is referenced in the article. The governor of my home state of Colorado, not me but this author, said that gathering with family for Thanksgiving was like putting a loaded pistol to grandma's head. So now we have the virtue signaling, which is uh, you know makes this even worse in many regards. And they bring up the term practical atheism, and I really like this. Another characteristic of practical atheism that Professor Gay rightfully identifies is anxiety. Anxiety is the inevitable reaction when we realize just how out of our control this fallen world is and how fragile our shoulders, which now bear the weight of the world without God, really are. And as an American, let's just talk about Western culture and Americanism specifically. As we have pushed God more and more out of our public life and have said, look, you know, religion or Christianity, that's something you can do within the four walls and roof of your church on Sunday. We have more and more people, shocker, who are terrified to die and willing to give their freedoms away in an effort to prevent them from meeting the ultimate judge. And that to me is really what's going on here. And it also, again, is something that I believe has infected the church as well. Anxiety and fear. We know we're not supposed to live this way, but how many of us through 2020 have experienced this uh, by the grace of God and his spirit have overcome it? How many of your family members have been just a little too anxious? I mean, we're, and, it, and it's a good thing in a way. It's, it's, kind, it's, uh, it's sanctifying us by making us you know, really focus on how it really is God who decides who lives and who dies. It's God who has a number on every single one of us. He knows when each one of us are going to check out of this world. And that should be an encouraging thought when we behold the gospel and who Jesus Christ really is. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and instead, well, I'm not going to say what has happened. I, I, I can just, I can say that it, it has certainly been an interesting year, and uh, 2020 in more ways than one is is really about seeing things crystal clear. I think we have had our problems uh, in many ways revealed to us in a much clearer way of, of where we are and really how fragile I think uh, we have become as a society in general as well as the body of Christ. 
It's the uh, it's really it is a worldview and it does create a difference. And the Christian worldview coming out of the scriptures basically says that we recognize that God is sovereign over all things. And in the midst of that sovereignty, then he calls us to be responsible. So when we see something happening, we know that we uh, if it's really ordained of God, you know, live, I live in an area and I grew up with uh, hurricanes. Uh, there were times when I almost felt like I wanted to go to the um, stand at the shore and put my hand up and said, no, you can't come here. And yeah, what effect would I have in, in being able to do that? Uh, no one can say to God, stay, don't do it. Uh, he, he he determines it. So whether it's a massive hurricane, a tornado that we don't want to come or an invisible virus, uh, God is the ultimate one in control. And our worldview says that we operate consciously and awareness faithfully, responsibly, uh, but we don't live in uh, in fear uh, when all the, that uh, comes in our way uh, comes our way. So uh, this is really drawing out. People are concerned, let's say that, you know, since the church hasn't been meeting, what effect is going to have on the life of the church? Well, it's probably uh, purging the church. You know, the judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Some things, yeah. un- the underbrush, and uh, because it's you know what if the person what if instead of a virus it was a legitimate persecution if you claim to be a christian we're coming after you period you know just uh, something like that uh and we're going to be taken and thrown to the lions um so this is a type of that where when things like this happen uh, and we can't control it in terms of its movement uh you know it we just have to uh, you know, to say we can we entrust ourselves to the hands of a faithful creator and believe that he will direct our steps. We have an article coming up just in a moment that um, will address this. So we'll wait and finish up that point uh, so that we can continue. OK, that's five. Now we come to number six. Uh, and number six uh, takes us in a little different way. Uh, since we just celebrated the Advent and the incarnation of Jesus uh, in the Christmas season, uh, this article by Michael Kruger, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, think you know the Christmas story? Here are five common misconceptions, and they're ones that have been raised, and preachers like to preach on these things, but they're they're really good. He not to destroy uh, the story or anything like that. Uh, but he just raises, says, here are five things that we normally uh, think about that we need to sort of look at the scripture one more time to understand exactly what happened. So he's affirming it, but maybe putting it, taking it out of the uh, fantasy land or the fairy tale perspective and saying, let's look really hard at the scripture itself and the story of the birth narrative of the second second person of the Trinity, who was in very nature God, who then uh, left the confines of heaven and set aside his privileges and took on the real human nature so that he was fully God and fully man. So uh, it's we, we should probably just use one or two and and uh, to tease you to make sure you read oh, the article, because yeah. I think it's yeah, it's really helpful, don't you think? Uh, honestly, it is. It is a good article. Uh, think, you know, the Christmas story here, five common misconceptions. Uh, I, I'll just let you guys go read it. I just want to collectively shame the audience for I mean, it's the week before it's the week of Christmas and people 
you know, put the two Christmas articles that are in this list of 10 in the bottom five. This is number six. And then we have number eight for another Christmas story. I, I guess I guess we you know, I don't know what that says about the readership, Dominic, but uh, they, they were they were more focused on those other articles and not these Christmas ones right before Christmas. <laughs> That's right. But anyway, so the misconceptions uh, and let me just uh, tell you the uh, things that deals with the nature of the star uh, and the wise men since they're the ones or the magi. And uh, so forth. So that's in that general direction. But here's a, a, a sort of a, a teaser as well, that uh, the concept of there was no room in the inn. Hmm. That's not necessarily the way it should be understood. And uh, was Jesus really born in a barn or stable? Hmm. OK, misconception. <laughs> and so uh, we'll stop there and you go read it. And uh, it's delightful. I appreciate Dr. Kruger uh, writing that for us and stirring our our minds with regard to that. Okay, number uh, seven is the Pastor uh, Gordon again, Chris Gordon, and this time he comes at the uh, matter uh, sort of like what we just looked at from the uh, piece from um, the uh, Prison Fellowship um, Breakpoint, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of two of 2020, the good, the bad, and the ugly of 2020 by Pastor Gordon, who is, uh, as I said, in uh, San Diego area in the United Reformed Church, uh, pastoring in that area. And um, so he takes uh, Psalm 90 and he uses it as the platform where he explains Psalm 90, what was going on. It's the only uh, Psalm that we have record that Moses actually was the author of, as opposed to David or uh, one of the, the choir masters and so forth. And um, was he said it was written for the tribes of Israel in the wilderness who faced many sorrows on their way to the promised land. By the way, notice that many sorrows, even though they were the people of God and God protected them, he had the uh, the Shekinah glory cloud by day and the fire by night to show he was present in his midst, and yet they still faced uh, sorrow. So the good, the bad, and the ugly actually then breaks it up and starts with the ugly and then the bad, then the good. So uh, the so the, the rhythm, we get out of rhythm on that point. Uh, the point he makes, though, is that it got ugly because of the rebellion of the people of Israel. Uh, in the wilderness and the things that happened. So it says how devastating it must have been for Moses to watch an entire generation of Israel fall in the wilderness, to death in the wilderness, unable to enter the land because of their disobedience. Adding grief or more grief, uh, bond grief, Numbers 20 tells us that Moses, sibling Aaron and Miriam died in the wilderness. All Moses knew was a world of death as he uh, from uh, coming out of Egypt. Uh, so they, it, it was ugly. There was there were a lot of those things that were happening as the people of Israel. These are the people. This is the church in the Old Testament uh, was going through these kinds of uh, pains. And uh, then he talks about it moves from the ugly to the bad. And then he eventually is going to talk about the good. Well, we'll wait just a minute or two to speak to that. Uh, but he is speaking in our context of the COVID because of 2020. Um, I don't know how many folks I've heard have said it'll be so nice. He says, I'm going to uh, stay up. This is a meme I saw on a Facebook or someplace. I'm going to stay up this time until midnight uh, So and usher in 2021 to make sure that 2020 doesn't follow. 
I mean, I I know a lot of people feel that way. I also know there's a lot of people who have struggled with despair, you know, during this year. And that's obviously not a good thing. That's not where we want to be. This this year has been trying on on a lot of people. Uh, I would not necessarily assume that just because the calendar moves from 2020 to 2021, that somehow that means that, uh, you know, God changes with the calendar or, or changes or, or gives us relief or deliverance necessarily. Uh, I do have hope, though, Dominic. This is really completely unrelated to the, this particular article. I do really pray and have hope that this virus that has tainted so much of 2020 will disappear just as fast as it came. And that is that's been my prayer. And I know other people are praying that as well. I, I do believe it's possible. And uh, I, I'd invite everybody out there. If 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 you if you don't maybe have a direction of how you're praying for uh, the world right now, I, I think that would be a good one to do. Yes. And, and this is where the good does come out, because the whole point is of Psalm 90 is to show the distress, pray through it and come to an answer and listen to what uh, God's answer is. And so it, uh, it, Moses then prays, so Lord, in light of all of this stuff, in fact, he even says the the length of our days, to use the old King James or, or is, uh, three score and 10, The uh, so there's 80, but I mean, uh, three score and yeah, uh, 70. That, so he says now, so teach us in light of all of this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So Moses, our pleads for something uh, else first. Is there a way to escape this awful predicament uh, into which we find ourselves? For who knows the power of his anger? That's verse 11. And then it comes, so teach us to number our days. And so following this terrifying question comes a heartfelt, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all the days. Uh, days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us uh, and for as many years as we have seen this evil, a beautiful covenantal statement, uh, Pastor Gordon says. Uh, so give us, O Lord, your kesed, yet is your righteousness, uh, your mercy, your merciful faithfulness. So the point is he puts it in the context of because we live in a fallen world uh, there, we will face death. There's no way we can avoid it unless uh, we're here when Jesus himself returns. And that is a part of life. There's a time to be born, a time to die. And this puts a good covenantal, biblical, uh, redemptive uh, face on all that's taking place. So it ends up um, at the very end with this statement. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. The sting of death is taken away and you have the Lord himself, who is your inheritance and your eternal life. These present sorrows soon will be no more forever. Anyone who enters eternal life must repent and believe. They come to Jesus first to receive forgiveness of their sins. And he basically says that's where we need to start. And when we have that consciousness, then we can go back to the phrase from Philippians 1.21 that I referenced about Paul. To live is now is Christ. I have Christ and I have him. Uh, and completion. So he he makes up my life. But in death, I gain him all the more because all of the obstructions and and all the facades and uh, the fears and sorrows of this world are gone. And I have Christ fully. So there is it ends up in a that's the good. And it's in fact, I would say it's the great uh, that really comes 
to bear at this point. Amen. Okay. So we come to um, twenty uh, the, to the eighth uh, chapter, and this is the second uh, Christmas one that uh, Paul had mentioned, Away with the Manger, <laughs> <laughs> which is a real clever take on it. This is by Kyle Borg, who is a minister uh, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, sometimes known uh, with shorthand phrases, the Covenanters. Uh, Christ wasn't manifest in the flesh to give us sentimental feelings or a mantle centerpiece. And he then talks about the, uh, the, the place of the manger and what that signifies uh, and how we're to understand it. Um, and uh, he also deals with it from the point of view of uh, the misconceptions that we have with regard to the uh, manger. But he puts it into the context of that we sometimes by focusing on the crush as sometimes called or the major scenes that we have on our centerpiece or uh, in our front yards or somewhere where we can see it, that we're putting focus on that incarnation to the point without looking also at the cross and also focusing perhaps even in the, that baby and to the point where is there the possibility of a representation of God and therefore violating the second commandment. So he does, a, I think, a very just job um, in, uh, you know, in that. But away with, uh, away with the manger is uh, not to get rid of the incarnation, uh, but to understand it from the point of view of its uh, biblical, redemptive and theological uh, reference that is yeah. really important for us to uh, really understand. I, I I wonder if he if he came up with this title before he wrote the piece because uh, it's a it's a pretty catchy title. Here's my question. I I understand the argument he's making about the second commandment and the uh again slippery slope. Maybe this is going to become a, an idol and, and a violation. I don't understand. And maybe you can help shed some shed some light on this, Dominic. I don't understand the argument he's making towards the end of his piece, where he uh, also uses the third commandment as well. L- listen to this. He says, of course, someone might say there's a big difference between bowing down to a golden calf and putting up a manger scene with the baby Jesus. When is the last time you saw someone bowing down at a nativity? I never have, he says. But. Here I would add the third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 27. This command, he writes, requires that God, as he makes himself known, is to be revered and worshipped. If we follow the logic, it seems inescapable. A picture of the incarnate Son, which is a representation of God, should not, by the third commandment, be treated with indifference, or else it's a vain picture. And then he says, and that it brings you back to the second commandment: God forbids we use images to revere and worship Him. I, I you know, I to me, I guess that 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 third commandment point is just you know, kind of lost on me. I'm just going to be honest. Oh, I think what he's just he's referring to the fact that that uh, we may, uh, without recognizing, fall prey to. Um, worshiping something just because we're seeing it or we begin to uh, imagine Jesus in in that light. Uh, and I think that's probably uh, one of the reasons uh, for it. The 
Um, one of the things that a larger catechism, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, you know, addresses a quite a lengthy statement as says, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? At least uh, something for the consideration. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, the making of any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly or in our minds or outwardly in the kind of images or likeness of any creature whatsoever. And it goes on to, uh, you know, this goes on to with a further statement. And I think that some have taken the understanding that the uh, writers of the uh, confession and the catechism were uh, basically just saying it's probably best to stay away from anything that does a representation. Uh, the argument on the counter uh, argument on the other side is, well, Jesus did come in human form. But in course, coming in human form, we don't have a picture of him, so we don't know what he looks like. And so people make representations of what they perceive or think he would have looked like as a baby and so forth throughout life. So I think that's where the wrestling is. Can you slip over without being, if you're not careful, into making a representation that you're um, not intending to, but you wind up worshiping? So I think it's just a caution that we need to be careful about. Yeah, yeah. Okay, number nine uh, takes us in a totally different direction, but also the hope of this uh, period of time of the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Christ is from Jim Challies. Uh, with the death of his son, he David, Tim has, I think, done uh, from all the reading that I've done and the articles he's done with the posting of his the recent death of his son, Nick, that he um, is sort of grieving out loud. And I think it's having, the, he's very careful. Uh, it's not maudlin. He's uh, presenting it in a way I think that's going to be, it, it's ministering to people who also have lost loved ones and still grieving and how he's processing it. And I think it's in a very good way. But the, talks about, he says, the uh, its title is The Death of My Son and the Birth of My Savior. And the, the one proposition statement is the birth of my Savior has everything to do with the death of my son. For it is only because of Christ's birth that I can hope about Nick's death. And it goes on to say the birth of my Savior has everything to do with, with the uh, death of my son. Uh, but uh, for it is only in uh, because of the birth Christ's birth that I can have hope in Nick's death. Because Christ lived uh, lived and lives. I have confidence that Nick lives and will live. Christmas does not take away all of my pain, but it does give me hope. It does give me confident assurance that there is joy beyond sorrow, gain beyond the loss, light beyond the darkness. The light that cut through the darkness on that Christmas night is the light that cuts through my darkness on this Christmas night. So it's a very personal application of the incarnation and that it's not seen by itself but it's in the context of the whole redemptive story that uh, it's not enough just to have jesus in the manger but also on the cross and also in it coming out of an empty tomb and i think it's if this will be an article that if you yourself have been through any uh, death experience or grief in your family or loved ones or friends 
that you're still processing it and you ask some questions, this this will help because it's a uh, it it's honest. Uh, it looks at the ugliness of death, at uh, the fact that it rips the uh, person that you loved away from you. It uh, breaks the circle. Uh, but the hope is there in the midst of this that uh, that Jesus came for the very reason uh, to put death to death. And he did that in his own death. And he quotes scripture here. <clears throat> the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And then he writes, it has not overcome it. It will not overcome it. It cannot overcome it. For this light is the light of light. This light is Christ himself. Great. It's a great. It's a great article. Yeah, uh, it definitely is. give it a read. It's right, and I would definitely encourage you to use it as something that you can share. Sometimes we stumble. What do we say to someone who's gone through uh, the death, especially of a young man who, in fact, was going to get married uh, this coming May, and uh, just taken so suddenly um, about that? So it, it, it ministers. It'll minister to people uh, in a gracious way. Then the last, uh, coming number 10, the uh, church and Israel in the New Testament. Uh, this is probably the more um, theologically minded as far as just, you know, a biblical thing. And it deals with concept that is uh, very much a part of the uh, life of the church in terms of interpreting and understanding the whole context of God working through Israel and his covenant people. And then when Jesus comes, then he opens up the gospel, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, so that now you have no longer just a ethnically based church, but it's now international, that God's intent from the beginning was to have an international church. Even when he gave the promise uh, to Abraham, he spoke about that, that not only you, Abraham, I'm blessing, but those who bless you, the nations, they will also be blessed. So the seeds of the gospel are there um, that beyond just ethnic Israel, but that Israel was the primary conduit. So it does is important redemptively, and we have to uh, take it uh, seriously. And the question is, how do we understand the coming of the church and so forth? And he talks about the difference between uh, the dispensational model, and that's a view of uh, a, a hermeneutic view of understanding interpretive interpretation of scripture with regard to God's covenant with Israel and what it represents, and then the covenantal view, which also deals with the same thing. And I think um, uh, the um, Keith uh, Matheson. Uh, does a very good uh, job on this in this church in Israel in the New Testament. And he basically goes through um, Romans 9 through 11 in a very over, very you know quick way, but yet a very helpful way. He doesn't get lost in the tall grass, but he deals with it honestly, thoroughly in a way that I think would uh, you'll find very helpful uh, to read. And if you're wrestling with just the whole meaning of Romans 9 through 11, with reference to Israel and the church and the relationship um, in redemptive history, uh, this will be one uh, that I think you'll find. He concludes here, the relationship between Israel and the church in the New Testament is not always easy to discern, but it can be understood if we remember the differences between national Israel and true Israel in both Old and New Testaments. And if we keep in mind what Paul teaches in Romans 11, Israel's present hardening has a purpose in God's plan, but this hardening is not permanent. 
the future restoration of the nation of Israel will involve though uh, they're re-engrafting into the olive tree, the one people of God. The restoration of Israel will mean they're becoming a part of, quote, true Israel by faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And to for him to make that statement, you definitely have to read his uh, predicate um, yeah. statements just above it. because But that is a good summary of what he clearly, I think clearly, outlines for us. I think he, ta- I mean, I think he does a good job of presenting the, you know, traditional views one way or the other, you know, that being, okay, God's done with Israel, and now we, we have the church, and, and, and versus those who say, no, God's not done with it. He basically says there can be a union of these two if you carefully examine Scripture, and I, I think he does a really good job, and I, I appreciated the read, and um, it, it you know, it's definitely been something, just me personally, that I've had a very keen interest in for a long time now. And it has been said before, you know, Israel kind of seems to be God's uh, God's timepiece, if you will. And, you know, if you look at recent history of, with 1948, I mean, when, have, when in the world have you ever heard of a people um, existing, you know, thousands of years ago and then not existing as a nation? And then 2,000 years later, coming back to their same land, it, and, it, and it miraculously, in my opinion, you know, forming again and calling themselves Israel. And I mean, when have you ever heard that happening where a people basically lose everything and then get it back in the exact same place? Exactly. Uh, it's remarkable. And it's mm-hmm. and it just it once again shows you that, no. No, I mean, you know, no, God's not done with with ethnic Israel. It's it's pretty obvious. But they are definitely a, a part of God's redemptive plan. And uh, in terms of the true Israel, and again, we won't give away the whole thing okay. here. But yes. uh, Keith uh, Matheson really does explain the difference. You know, the ethnic Israel, the uh, true Israel, the church, and and he defines each of those. And therefore, once you understand his definitions, it really makes good sense, and I think very helpful. Uh, to to all of us so well that uh, Paul another uh, 10 uh, articles top 10 that the uh, people that our readers have read and we appreciate uh, all of you coming to the Equal Report at any point that um, if you're listening and you haven't been and you just been listening to the podcast I invite you to go to the AquilaReport.com and if you're not receiving the weekly newsletter which has these top 10 each week then you can uh, register and sign up for them on the site there and we uh, thank you for being a part of this uh, uh, podcast to listening to it and we trust that it's helpful to sort of expand the your readership and your reading in a, a wide variety of areas uh, beyond just what these 10 um, articles represent so we appreciate you being with us and until next time we will pray the Lord blessing on you and since this is the last one of for 2020 we uh, want to wish you a uh, a God-filled grace anointing uh, fullness of God's blessing upon you regardless of whatever happens with the coronavirus uh, remember God's in control <laughs>